0: we're believers in jesus christ as believers in jesus christ we're optimists because he's painted us an incredible picture of what the future looks like this is very different to the world views around us in the world the greeks and the romans their way of viewing future actually they didn't really focus on the future their golden era was their past so their focus very much was the past hindus have a cyclical understanding of history they believe that things just go in constant circles and therefore there's no ultimate expectation there's no ultimate build-up to some great thing it's just a constant cycle of karma Uh, one of the key features of marxism was they had this dream of a utopia where classes would disappear and there would be a dictatorship and everyone apparently would be equal in a humanistic state evolutionist dream of a better future They say over millions of years we've been evolving to the state we're at now, so advanced, so sophisticated, so morally pure and upright, and yet we're going to continue to advance in the millions of years ahead to something better. There are many people who are cynical about meaning at all, that history has no meaning and there is no meaning in the future. Valtman summed this up when he said, the question of meaning in history has become meaningless. But as believers in Jesus, we have optimism because we believe there's a great culmination there is a great exciting event up ahead. It's like the kids who went into the, the pet shop and he was looking, his mum and dad brought him in to buy a dog. And he was looking around all the dogs and there was one crazy dog and its tail was going ballistic, wagging away. And after he looked at all the dogs, his mum and dad said, what dog would you like, son? I said, I want that one. I said, why do you want that one? He said, I like the one with the happy ending. <laughs> and... I I like that one too. I like the idea of a happy ending. Why is it in our souls that's what we long for? I believe it's because ultimately that is what is going to happen. Billy Graham said, I'm an eternal optimist. Because I've read the end of the book and I found that we win. So I'm going to take you on a journey today. And it's going to be quite an extensive journey. We're going to cover a lot of grounds. It might be a little bit longer than normal. We're going to look at this parable. The parable of the fig tree. And then we're going to go from that parable to the chapter that the parables in and look at some of the things that he's referring to and then we're going to go back to the parable and conclude by looking at the verses that are after the parable that's the plan if you understood that matthew 24 verses 1 to 3 jesus left the temple and was walking away when his uh, when his disciples came to him to call to his attention his buildings do you see these things he answered truly i tell you not one of the not one stone he will be left upon another Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting in the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When will these things be? They had a question and Jesus, their question provoked a parable. This is often how Jesus taught questions would provoke a parable in answer to their question and exactly the same is taking place here and actually whether they realized it or not they were asking about two different events they may have thought in their minds they were asking about one and the same event when they said when will these things be they were asking about when will the temple be destroyed that jesus had just mentioned that every stone would be pulled down well that was a 70 ad event jesus predicted it but they also said and what will be the sign of your coming and that wasn't a 70 AD event, that was a different event. And in the chapter, the, chapter 24, we discover Jesus actually talks about both of these events in the chapter. Then Jesus answers them with a, a parable, verse, 20, this, verse 32. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, uh, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things, you know that it is near right at the door. So Jesus here has finished his last day of public teaching in the temple course. He no longer teaches publicly. He's now withdrawn to be with the disciples. It's evening, it's sunset, and he's on the Mount of Olives looking back at sunset back at Jerusalem in a discussion with the disciples. This is called the Olivet Discourse. This is the Wednesday. On the Friday, he's crucified. On the Sunday, he's resurrected. He died, as we sang, in your place. Took all your sin, all my sin, all our brokenness upon himself. Died in our place so that we wouldn't be judged, so that we wouldn't be condemned to hell. But that rather we could be saved and know him and know him for eternity. And he rose again on the third day. And he spent the next 40 days with the disciples talking about things to come. And then having spent those 40 days with his disciples, he ascended to be back with the Father. And today, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, rule and reign and always will. And one day, Jesus Christ is there now, but one day he will return and he's sitting waiting for that return. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So he's in this dialogue with the disciples. And it's springtime. We understand, we celebrate the, the resurrection of Jesus at Easter. That's because that's when it took place. The death, Christmas time is just a random date people chose for his birth. But his death and resurrection were a specific time in the year. It's the Jewish calendar uh, moment of Passover, which is our Easter time. So this was springtime Jesus was talking. And he talks, he gives a parable that's about spring. He talks about a fig tree. When you see its, its branches become a little bit tender and buds start to come out, you know that summer's coming. He's talking about summer coming uh, it's been springtime, you know, that summer's coming. You see, he's talking about the end of the world here, folks. The illustration wasn't it's autumn and winter's coming. He said it's spring and summer's coming. You see, as far as Jesus is concerned, the end of the world is not a down point. That's the beginning. This is the bursting forth. This is the birth pains before the baby is born. This is the picture here, folks. And he's talking about an amazing transition that will take place on planet Earth. The best is yet to come. Jesus was asked this question. When you see all these things, you will know that it is near right at the door, Jesus said. What things? In this parable. So the question was asked at the beginning of the chapter. He gives the parable further on in the chapter. But between the question being asked by the disciples and the parable being given by Jesus... He goes into a whole discourse that talks about the return of Jesus Christ. And he says, when you see these things, the signs of his return, then you know that it's about to happen. So let's go on that journey. Let's go back in the chapter and look at the things he said in Matthew 24. And we're going to, you know, here's the thing. When you look at the chapter in chronological order, it's got a whole lot of themes kind of jumbled into each other. So what I've done is I've taken the verses that relate to the different aspects of what he's talking about and i i'll take you through the verses in that order so the first thing i wanted to look at is the destruction of jerusalem verses one and two we've read this a moment ago jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to call to his attention its buildings do you see these things he asked truly i tell you not one stone will be left upon another everyone will be thrown down the disciples were galileans they were hillbillies they were from the highlands area of israel The likelihood is they probably hadn't been that often to Jerusalem. So to be in an urban context with a spectacular building like the Jewish temple would have been, whoa, check out these buildings. I mean, they really were spectacular. The whole temple mount area was incredible. Phenomenal engineering, beautiful architecture, gleaming in the sunshine with its gold roof. And they were saying, look at this. And Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. In the bits earlier, we understand that the destruction of Jerusalem came because they had rejected their Messiah. And it wasn't just their Messiah, Jesus, that the, the Jewish people had rejected. But also they had rejected every prophet that God had sent to them down through the generations. And God drew a line and said, enough is enough. 70 AD, the Romans, exasperated by Jewish rebelliousness, drew a line. And they stopped trying to pacify the Jews. And they said, end of. And they turned to a military attack on Jerusalem, where Titus and four legions of Roman em- uh, uh, armies arrived and ransacked Jerusalem, it was a horrendous moment. And literally, as Jesus said, every stone was torn down. Jewish, the Jewish, the God's judgment on the Jews in that moment was because of their rejection of their Messiah. But also, a very practical reason why they experienced that judgment was that if they had also accepted the Messiah, they would have accepted Jesus's way of doing things. They would have stopped their power politics and their bickering. They would have changed their ways. And had they had done that, and just in practical ways, the, the Romans wouldn't have attacked them. Because it was because of the rebelliousness that the Romans attacks. William Barclay put it this way. Had the Jews accepted the Christian way of love and abandoning the way of power politics, Rome would never have descended on them with its avenging might. Then... This is siege of Jerusalem. And this is described in verses 15 to 22. Jesus said, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoke of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. All right. Thanks. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one go to the housetop or go down to get anything out of his house, let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be for those who are pregnant in those days and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never will be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would have survived. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Again, I believe referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, he talks about, you know what, it's, it's going to be a barbaric attack on this city. And it, it was, truly. Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes that attack. And the Jews actually didn't take Jesus' advice. They, they instead of running to the hills, they, they gathered in Jerusalem. They locked themselves in. And the Romans laid siege. And there was a famine descended in the whole city. And people died horrible deaths in that city. And it was a terrible moment. 1.1 million Jews died in that moment and 97,000 of them were taken as slaves. It was a devastating blow on Jerusalem. And then he goes on, and now he talks about the signs of his coming, his second coming. I guess there's two types of signs. Some of them are dangers from outside the church. Some of them are dangers from inside the church. So dangers from outside the church, verses six to nine. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and be put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. So Jesus predicts, as, as has been and is being fulfilled these last two millennia, we have seen intense persecution against God's people. We also see in the secular world battles, and we see that in an increasing way. It seems almost every day there's different conflicts erupting in various parts of the world. And it is the case statistically that there is an increase of both wars and conflicts and natural disasters. Jesus predicted this, and he also predicted along with that, that being a believer in those times will result in great persecution. It was the case in New Testament times with those disciples that Jesus was speaking to in the Mount of Olives. Many of them, apart from John, they were all martyrs. And many of the thousands and thousands of others in the early church experienced massive persecution under Nero and and also with the Romans on one side and then with the Jews on the other. But ever since then, Christians have been persecuted. Here's a statistic from David Barrett and Todd Johnson. They say that there is an estimated 160,000 martyrdoms per year in 50 countries globally. Every year, 160,000 of people, thousands of people who we would sit and worship with on a Sunday gathering, in various parts of the world, are experiencing death because of their faith. Here's a, a quote from a man called Tahir Iqbal, who was a Muslim convert to Christianity. He was imprisoned on December 7, 1990 in Pakistan. He was paraplegic and confined to a wheelchair. Life was utterly uncomfortable and tough for him even before being in prisons, but now he was in prison because he was a believer and he refused to renounce his faith in Jesus. When he was asked about the possibility of being hanged for his faith, he answered, I will kiss my rope, but I will never deny my faith. He died in prison 19th of July, 92. There has always been persecution, and there will always be persecution, as long as people are living authentically for God. Now, many people at this point would talk about a thing they call the tribulation. Who's heard of the tribulation? Okay, so, half of you. The tribulation is described in Daniel and in Revelation. Most people would believe it's a seven-year period if you're to believe literally what's written in Daniel and Revelation. The tribulation, I guess, Here, Jesus described an intensifying of of, uh, persecution, really tough times prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. But it will also be the case that in the lead up to the return of Christ, there will be great tribulation. There are people who believe that, some people believe that Jesus will return after a period of tribulation. Things will get really tough, then Jesus will return. Other people believe that Jesus will return prior to a period of tribulation, that Jesus will come he will rapture his people up into the sky and then there will be tribulation on earth for seven years. There are other people who believe that the seven-year tribulation isn't to be taken literally. And I guess if you were to go to various parts of the world uh, and ask any believer who right now is suffering intensely for their faith, as actually, we've got it very comfortable here. But if you went to many parts of the world and talked to believers who are really suffering for their faith, as thousands upon thousands are, and you were to ask them about the tribulation, I guess they might say, I hope it doesn't get any worse than this because really what's going on right now around the world as we speak is intense even though we don't get that in our comfortable Western culture. So there's the tribulation. Paul said this, and this is a great perspective on tough times. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9. A great door of effective work is open for me and there are many who oppose me. Love that. Here's Paul. He says, there are many who oppose me But before that, he says, a great door of effective opportunities open for me. But there are many who oppose me. You know what we typically do? We're weaklings. We typically think that the easy path means God's with us. We typically think, ah, all the doors are opening. It must be the will of God. So we throw out 50 CVs and says, God, choose what job you want me to have. All right. And you, you relocate to various places. And God maybe didn't want you to relocate maybe he wanted you to stay in that community you were in and impact where you were and yet you just went for the easy opportunity sometimes that's god but oftentimes it's when the doors are slammed in your face and there's opposition that actually they're the biggest opportunities sometimes the biggest and best opportunities you will have will be when you're going through the toughest times and historically the church has thrived even amidst the most intense persecution around the world then it goes on in, in the verses <clears throat> signs of his coming but now it's dangers within the church verses 4 and 5 10 to 13 and 12 to 26 sorry and 23 to 26 jesus answered watch out that no one deceives you for many will come in my name claiming i am the messiah and will deceive many verse 10 at that time though many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other because, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the ends will be saved. Apparently, the sign of an authentic believer is one who hangs in there. The authentic believer isn't the one who started great. The authentic believer is the one who hang in there. Verse 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look There he is, here is the Messiah, or there he is. Do not believe it, for many false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, or out in the wilderness, do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe him. Here we see, again, signs of the ends of the time. Within the church, there will be deceptions. There will be tough times. It kind of indicates that prior to Jesus' return, there will be a kind of a sifting out. There will be, in one sense, the church will be thriving and growing. And I can show you many verses in the Bible that talks about how prior to Jesus' return, the church will never be stronger. It will never be bigger. And I believe that is my expectation. That this church and the other churches in this city will continue to grow influence and dominate in a good sense in our city and be a blessing to as many people as possible that's why we're here yeah but also at the same time things will be tough black will get blacker white will get whiter there will be no shades of gray lukewarmness will be kind of dealt with religiousness will be washed away it's like the the story way back in when things were tough in russia when it was tough to be a christian way back in communist russia and there was great persecution into a, they had an illegal church service, underground church service one day, and in walked two policemen with machine guns, and they said, anyone who doesn't, doesn't want to die for their faith must leave now. Straight away, 40% of the crowd just disappeared. When the crowd thinned out, the policemen put their guns down and said, great, we're now with authentic believers, let's worship God. <laughs> but I believe that will take place. Uh, it will be tough to be a believer. I mean, there'll be thousands of us. And every day, God will be adding to the church. But it's going to be tough to be a believer. There's two dangers indicated here. One is from false teachers. The other one is from discouragement. People are going to face so much discouragement. See, signs of Jesus' coming are like waves on a beach. The wave comes in and goes out again. It's like the signs intensify on the earth, and then they retract. And then they intensify on the Earth, and they retract, and they intensify on the Earth. And we see that we've seen that through history. We see the Second World War, and everyone's writing books about how Hitler's the Antichrist and Jesus is returning. Those books don't sell very well now, unfortunately. Uh, but it, kind of, it was like a wave came in and it retracted, and a wave came in and it retracted. Now here's the fact, folks: the tide is rising. It's just we don't have the tide timetable, we don't know when high tide is. That's the point. But the, the waves are coming. And retracting and coming again and retracting and it's an indicator that there's a building up towards culmination which will result in the return of jesus christ then the verses talk about the second coming this is verse 27 to 31 for as the lightning comes from the east and is visible even to the west so will be the coming of the son of man wherever there is a carcass there the vultures will gather Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. It's interesting that it describes here the disintegration of the heavens. The stars falling and moon being de- sun and moon changing colors. This disintegration of the heavens isn't the prelude to destruction, but rather is the prelude to a new creation. That's interesting. Just like the parable of the fig tree isn't the sign that winter's coming but rather the sign that summer's coming. That actually it's the birth pains that's going to result in a glorious hope, but it gets tough first. Some people take uh, these signs as figurative. Some people take them as literal. Some people believe literally that one day, literally the moon and the sun will change and there'll be stars falling and that sort of thing will happen, which I'm happy to believe. Other people believe figuratively that this is talking about, as, as in various other places in the Bibles, when it talks about the heavenly beings sun and moon and stars it's often referenced to nations talking about nations falling and superpowers coming to an end which I also may well refer to the difficulty i have is when people are crystal clear when the bible isn't uh, i just don't have the confidence to do that but the bible is nevertheless clear that he will return and there will be very clear signs that his coming is near now before his return Uh, In Revelation chapter 20, it describes a millennial reign of Christ. And let me just take a little interlude here just to talk about some of the positions that people have on this. In Revelation 20, it describes how Satan, that serpent, the ancient dragon, will be bound and will be thrown in a pit. uh, And he will be bound for a period of 1,000 years. And Jesus will reign from Jerusalem with the saints. And the unbelievers will be outside Jerusalem. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be loosed. He will deceive the nations. He will gather the nations. And there will be a great battle, the battle of Armageddon. And fire will come down from heaven and consume the baddies. And the goodies win. Some of you are sitting there freaked out. Others are saying, yeah, I'm with you. Ah. Now, it sounds like a sci-fi movie. People who take Revelation 20 as a literal description of what will take place... Are called pre They believe that Jesus will come uh, pre-millennium. He believes the millennial hasn't. The thousand years millennium hasn't taken place yet. That Jesus will return. And at his return believers will be caught up with him in the heavens. He will descend. He will literally. Jesus Christ will be on the throne in Jerusalem. Believers will live there also. Outside of the walls of the holy city will be an unbelieving world who kind of begrudgingly submit to the rule of king jesus who ru- rules the world by that point after a thousand years uh, satan will be released there will be a great battle and then there will be the great white throne judgment that's what pre-millennialists believe Postmillennialists believe somehow or another that the church is going to be so successful on planet earth that through our endeavors satan literally will be bound he won't be able to move an inch on earth and that after a thousand years of that state of impact on earth, Jesus will return at that point. Amillennialists mean they're people who don't take the Revelation 20 passage literally. They believe that it's talking figuratively of Satan's being bound through the cross and the impact of Jesus on the, on this, on the, on the cross and his resurrection. And that the church age is represented by the millennium. And Jesus will return at the end of that. Whatever your position i don't mind just don't get so caught up in it and bang your little drum and try and argue a case for that because that's not the case we're going to argue i guess we could all be pan-millennialists it will all pan out in the ends we're going to we're going to figure it somehow we're going to say ah you were right and i don't care i'm so glad you were right just look at this so don't worry about it don't worry about it and don't let the focus on the future neutralize your impact right now it actually should empower your impact right now if you've got a true focus. Okay, just, just as God appointed a moment where in all eternity God decided I will create a world. And God spoke and the world came into being. And then God decided there was a distinct moment where God made a decision. And God appointed a moment where he would judge the world with a floods. And according to Bible uh, chronology, 2300 years BC, there was a great flood which archaeologists would agree took place on earth as God's judgment and then in God's moment God appointed a moment where a virgin would conceive and have a child and 2,000 years ago Jesus God in the flesh entered into human history and if you're a believer God apparently way back before the foundation of the world predestined you and planned you that you would know him today and the Bible also says he not only knows you but he also knew where you would live and the times you would live in, according to Acts 17. But the Bible also tells us that he has also fixed and appointed a day when he will return. Acts 17:31. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus will return. Daniel 7:27 describes this. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms of the heavens, under the heavens, will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. The New American Standard puts that, of the highest. He's the highest. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the rulers will worship and obey him. Let's go back to the parable. So we've looked at the kind of journey that Jesus has taken us on. He's talking about two historic events. His ultimate return and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Going back to the parable with that in mind. We're going to look at the parable now and just go on a few verses beyond the parable. The question the disciples asked was, tell us, they said, when will this happen? Talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And what will be the sign of your coming? Talking about the great event at the end that we're still anticipating. Jesus answered them in verse 23. Now learn the lesson of the fig tree. As soon as its figs get tender. And its leaves come out. You know that summer is near. Even so when you see all these things. You know that it is near. Right at the door. It's not the ends. Just the beginning. You see when it says. It is near. Right at the door. In Luke's gospel. That phrase is it expanded a little bit it says this recognize that the kingdom of god is near so what when it says it is near what's it well in luke's gospel tells us it's the kingdom of god so what's it saying well it's saying that the ultimate reign of god is going to be in heavens and on earth that the end of man's fallenness and the beginning of god's rule Yay. That's what it's saying. And he says, You're going to see these signs, and you're going to be aware this will happen. Verse 34, he says, Truly I tell you, this generation shall certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. This generation? What does that mean? Because Jesus didn't come back in that generation, did he? No. Phew. <laughs> Glad you agree with me on that one. This generation, well, many people have, well, what does this generation mean? Many people have speculated on many things. He is what I believe the two best meanings of this generation would be. This generation, I think he meant literally. Disciples, the people who lived at the time of the disciples, this generation will not pass away until AD 70 destruction of Jerusalem. Historically, that was absolutely right. 40 years after saying that, the destruction of Jerusalem took place. I also believe it could well mean When he said this generation, I think he could also mean this generation that sees the signs. So when you're living in the generation where the signs of the return of Christ have been magnified and they're happening with frequency and intensity, this wave is the last wave, then you know this generation will not pass away until you see His coming. That generation that sees those signs. It could mean either. I think it could actually very easily mean either. The fact is, it doesn't matter. Because we're alive in this generation. This generation might not be this generation. But it's our generation. And death is 100% in every generation. This generation will die. And I assure you, we will all meet God. He might not surprise us by coming out of the heavens. But we will stand before him. And it will be just as outstandingly awesome and scary and frightful and awe-inspiring as it will be when he returns. So whether we're this generation or not, this is our generation, and probably within the next hundred years, we will all see God. So you've got to be ready. And Jesus said in verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. See, God spoke the world into being. He will also speak the world into Dissolving. And he will speak again, according to the Bible, very clearly, and he will create a new heavens and a new earth. I don't know if he will literally remove the physical globe we're on and literally create a new one. Personally, I suspect not. I think he will remold. I think he will remove a lot of stuff and redo the whole thing again. I think it will be awesome, the best renovation you've ever seen. I think everything that's awesome. And wonderful and God glorifying. That's on our world. I, ch- I chatted to a couple earlier. Climbed to base camp last week. Mount Everest base camp. I mean that's pretty awesome. Uh, you guys were I. Yeah, heroes. Climbed to base camp. Um, Mount Everest. That's just epic. Thing. I mean the, the views. The world we're living in is incredible. But the Bible says there will be a new heavens. And a new earth. And there won't be sin. And there won't be death. And there won't be tears. There will be no more death it's incredible sin will be done away with all corruption will be gone and yet everything that's good here and i i believe that will mean your ability to have hobbies your ability to invent things and create things and build stuff and go places and have adventures and in it all glorify god with the purest of motives that's the world we're going to be living in and heaven and i think there'll be a thin line between earth and heaven there will be a new heavens and a new earth Just as Jesus said that when you've got new leaves coming, you know summer is coming. Just when that mother has birth pains, you know a baby is coming. Folks, with that in mind, don't spend your life focusing in on this world. Don't spend your efforts and your money and your agendas and all your passions living your best for this world. There's a God in heaven who deserves to be served. He created you. He gave you life and breath. He gave you your abilities and talents. Live for him and him alone. You get one life. You've got to live this life for him. It says in First John two seventeen. this world is passing away and also its lusts. People spend their life on this earth pursuing desires and lusts. You're like an animal. You're a child of God. You might be pursuing God, not stuff. And lusts and base instincts. This world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Yay! Because you've plugged into God. His word will continue. He will continue. You've connected with Him. You will see eternity. Live for Him. Verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun. But only the Father. Interesting. Jesus here speaking in his humiliation. Philippians 2 talks about how God, Jesus, took on human flesh and he restricted himself to being, even though he is fully God, a man. God is omniscient, that means he knows everything. And yet Jesus, in his humiliation, understood only the things the Father revealed to him. He laid aside his divine entitlements in his humiliation he didn't however lay aside his divine nature or attributes he's fully god yet fully man and as such didn't even know because he'd restricted his knowledge the father knows jesus said this no one knows the day or the hour and ever since then human beings the way we are we speculate and say well the antichrist had five fingers in that hand and he had three nose hairs and he took five paces in that direction. And those things represent this. And that means by September, the you know, we come up with all these kind of crazy calculations. And uh, we try and figure out when Jesus will come back. But Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. In fact, he said, be careful that no one deceives you. 90 AD started. Clements, Clement I predicted the date for Jesus' return. He was wrong. Second century, there's a group called the uh, Montanists who predicted the second coming of the Lord. Within a few years, they also were wrong. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter Day Saints, he predicted the world would come to an end, definitely in 1832, or 1890, as that first date came and went, or 1891. Mm-mm. And then there was the Millerites who said, the Lord is coming on March 21st, 1843. And, oh no, October 22nd, 1844, and that didn't work out either. And then there was Ellen G. White who founded Seven Day Adventism, who said the Lord would come back in 1850. Guess not, 1856. And then there was the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're fantastic at this, who said, the Lord will come back in 1914, 1915. 1918 1920 1925 41 75 and 1990 and every time they're getting closer folks if you're in those movements get out see folks it, jesus said not even the angels in heaven know. I and mean, the angels are hanging around the throne but you're saying no no me and my group no the angels are hanging around the throne and you know Oh, really? Verse 37. As it was in the day of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the floods, people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two women will be grinding Uh, with a hand mill one will be taken the other will be left therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your lord will come but understand this if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming he would have kept watch so that they would not have let his house be broken into so you also must be ready because the son of man may come will come at an hour when you do not expect him Two things I want to leave you with. The first thing is this. Be ready. Jesus says this. So you also must be ready. Because you don't know when the Son of Man, what what hour he will come. Be ready. Here's some historic facts. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, predicted that he would die on a cross and the third day rise again. Historically, they happened. He said that would happen, and it happens. During his earthly ministry, Jesus went on record and said that there will be a destruction of Jerusalem where not one stone will be left upon another. Historically, it took place within the generation Jesus predicted it would take place in. Jesus Christ also said he will return, that day will come. And just as historically sure as the past two events have been that he predicted would happen, I assure you and I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ will return. There is an exact moment. It has not been kind of forgotten about. God is very much on agenda. The return of Christ will happen and history will prove it to be so. Don't be like the folks who were in Noah's day. They mocked Noah. Why is a guy, this old guy, building a huge boat inland? You know, this colossal boat. And he says there's going to be a flood. He says there's going to be judgment of God. And the Bible says they just went on marrying, getting married, living, doing their thing, ignoring God. And then a day came and they didn't expect it. They didn't believe what Noah had been saying to them all this time. They didn't expect it. And the judgment came. So too it will be identical in the day that Jesus Christ returns. So you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready right now. How do you be ready? Well, you be ready by Live ready. That's how you be ready. You gotta live ready every moment of your life. The fact is, we could whether Jesus comes back right now, your heart could stop beating right now. Now don't let me finish the message first. <laughs> but your heart could stop beating right now. You could just go into eternity right now, whether you feel ready for it or not, whether you've prepared anything or not. You gotta be ready. You gotta be ready today for meeting God. Life is short. It might not continue as long as you anticipate. I hope it does, but it might not. And also a day will come when you will meet him face to face. But here's the truth. Whether you meet him face to face at the end of your life or whether the the clouds split and God comes as he promises he will. Either way, you're going to stand before him. I'm going to stand before him. And here's the truth. Either way, we're sitting before him now right now if we could see him right now we would be beside ourselves if we could see him as he is right now in our midst by his spirit he is here if we were just aware of that how are you living in private but no one else sees god sees listen i don't care if you look around this church and see other people living compromised lives in destiny they might not be saved you you stand to fall before god i don't care what anyone else is doing you stand to fall before god are you living for god in private and in public when god sees every area of your life it's all laid bare before him just because it's not as real for us as it will be in the second coming it is real we must live ready be ready means live ready Live for God now and make your life count for God now. And then let me end with the second thing I want to say to you. And this is a verse we skipped. It's in the verses we read, but we we skipped ahead of it. It's verse 14, and Jesus said this. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus predicts. that that his return will only happen after an event has taken place global evangelization the whole world's hearing about jesus now when it says the gospel we preached in all nations i don't just think nation is the greek word ethnos it doesn't just mean a physical landmass, a nation a land a country it actually typically more often means a tribe or a people group and just so you know, there are many, many more people groups than there are countries. So when it says the gospel we preached in all nations, it's saying the gospel we preached in all people groups in our worlds. And there is a long way to go. Jesus' first coming was so that we could be saved, Jesus' second coming is so that the world will be judged. Jesus' first coming gives salvation. The Bible, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Believing in Jesus' first coming is what gets you saved. Believing in the second coming doesn't get you saved. Believing in the first coming gets you saved. We're not called to preach the second coming. We're called to preach the first coming to the world. According to the Bible, the second coming will only happen once first comings had full impact on earth. So instead of us being so heavenly-minded by thinking about these things, what this should do for us, folks, is it should stir in us such a passion for other human beings that we say we're going to share the first coming with as many people as we can while we're alive. We're going to tell people about Jesus, the one who came and died for them because they, they mattered so much to God, and he rose again so that they could be eternally saved. We're going to share that message. Share it wherever we go in authentic ways. Tell people about your faith in Jesus. Uh, invite people to church if you if you can do the leaflet Graeme graham said invite people to come along and hear ian mccormick in one of those two nights get leaflets as bundles in the information desk we're needing leaflets take take one bundle if that's all you can do if you want to take three four bundles if you've got a few extra hours do that but take what you can do and either way take leaflets with you invite friends let's make the most of our opportunities as i was flying back from Mallorca, i was sitting beside michael on one side angie and becky were behind us in the seats behind us and on my uh, on my right there was a a, a lady there called Liz. I thought Liz, are you here today? Don't know if you're here. No. I'd, I advised at the church. She she said she was heading down to a wedding down south. But she does plan to come, she said. So maybe you get to meet her one day. I, I got a chance to chat to Liz about my faith and I told her about this church. I said you're a wonderful bunch, right? So you better not let me down. <laughs> uh, I said, honestly, they're amazing. They don't sin ever. Not after this sermon you want. <laughs> so I said, Liz, you should come to church. So I invited her on. I gave her an invitation. Keep them in my wallet all the time. Little credit card size invitations. All the time. Have them with me. You should do the same. And uh, do you know what she said to me? She said, Peter, I work in a special needs school in Edinburgh. And the chaplain in that school is the most amazing man. She says, is, he gets down and he rolls around the floor with the kids, the special needs kids. And he can relate to those kids like no other religious person I've known And he said he does their funerals for them and he's completely there for the staff. And she says, When my daughter gets married, I'm gonna get him to do my wedding. So do you know what? Me telling her about God, me telling her about coming to church, it wasn't that hard. Because someone had just lived it out in front of her for months and for years. And she observed that and she was wide open to hearing. And she said, I'm gonna come to your church, she said. So you can look out for her. Tell him if she comes. But just live your faith. Live a witness. Show that you, you know, you're living with a different anticipation than the world around you. You're born for another world. You're born for God. Live for him. And also speak for him. Tell people about Jesus Christ. Someone likens the first coming of Jesus Christ to being like D-Day when the Allies landed in the Normandy beaches. And because of their success in the Normandy beaches historically that was the moment the tide turned. it was because of the success in the Normandy beaches that victory was assured but it wasn't until V-Day which was victory day when eventually the German army laid down their arms that victory was affirmed and just as there was a period between D-Day and V-Day and there was a conquest for the land so too is today we are living in the era between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ victory is ultimately assured and he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. That will be a second coming. But in the meantime, we have a role to play. We have a job to play. We must live ready and we must share our faith with the world around us. And as we live like this, a moment will come where Jesus will return. Someone once said, there is only one life and it will soon be passed. And only, what is do- only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. God, we're in your presence. And God, you know every part of our life. You know every secret in our life. You know every struggle in our life. And I want to thank you because of Jesus. You have grace for us. I want to thank you, as Graham said earlier, we can come boldly before your throne. I want to thank you, a God who is a God of love. And a God who, because of your love... You're holding back judgment on this world because you want this world to get saved. I thank you a patient God and a loving God. Father, I ask you that we will live lives before you. We will live ready. We will live lives before you knowing that we're living before Almighty God. God, I pray, would you grip our hearts with some, some of the reality of that and let us live in a wholesome fear of God with a passion for you and a deep desire to live for you and serve you not because that's what saves us because Jesus your death on the cross is what saves us but because really it's the only appropriate way to live before a holy God and because actually we want to offer our whole lives as an act of worship to you God everything about us we want to glorify you God I pray for anyone here today and as ever I include myself in these prayers I pray for anyone here today who's dabbling with sin who's messing around and they're living like sure other people don't see or maybe their attitude is well doesn't matter God will forgive me and God you do forgive but how could we act that way because you're great I ask God In Jesus' name, that anyone here today who's living a double life, who says they're a Christian, but they're messing around and living totally compromised, I pray today, God, from the depths of their being, they will repent before you and they will live for you, Jesus, and they will live ready. The last thing we would want is the skies to open and we're in the middle of some sin or another or in the middle of a thought or another. God, we don't want to mollycoddle these things we don't want to hold on to them we don't want to pamper these things we want to reject them God we want to live for you God just just right now just as the band play just wherever you are repent ask God for forgiveness make a choice I'm going to live differently I'm going to stop sleeping with my girlfriends not married I'm I'm going to stop perving in those areas I'm going to stop justifying that type of behavior. Repent. I'm going to stop that dubious work practice, which is actually called theft. Repent. If you call yourself a believer, live for God. Thank you. You say, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just and you forgive our sins. And you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, God. That's what you've just done all of this auditorium. As people have prayed, thank you right now. Just so easily you've given forgiveness because you paid the price on the cross. Help us now to live grateful. Also want to challenge us all have deep concern for those around us don't just be an individual love the people in this church and love the people in your community and in the world knowing what we know knowing that there's a great god and knowing that he will come and judge and knowing that he's paid the price for people to be saved how could we not share our faith so make a decision before him no matter how equips you feel to do that or not or how scared you are about doing that or not just make a decision before him just now I'm going to share my faith just make that decision before him just now so God we pray give us opportunities give us opportunities this week this month to share our faith with people who are so precious in your sight you've known them since they were in their mother's womb and you planned them since the beginning of the time and I believe you have a plan for them also would you save them through our witness Father now I want to pray for anyone here today God who doesn't yet know you I pray please Father soften their hearts and let them come to you just now let them experience your love right now let them be saved right now I'm just going to give you that opportunity out there if you're here and you're, sick. You're, you're not saved yet. You don't know God. The great news is that God knows you and he loves you. And he's paid the ultimate price on the cross. Dying for your sins and rising again. You can know him. You can really know him. You can love him. And you can be with him for eternity. If that's you today and you saying, Peter, I don't want to live anymore without God in my life. I want God in my life. Then right now, wherever you are, I invite you just to pray a prayer with me. Repeat this after me. And let this be your heartfelt commitment to him. Quietly under your breath, just repeat this prayer after me. Pray, dear Lord God, I don't want to live anymore without you in my life. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died and you rose again. I believe you're alive right now. I believe you died so I could be forgiven and have a new life. And I believe He died so that I could know you, God. Today, I embrace you, Lord. Forgive me save me. Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Take first place in my life. I want to know you and live for you for the rest of my days and on into eternity. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Okay, if you prayed that prayer, just keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer and you made that decision, I would love the privilege of praying for you. So if you're here today and you made that decision and you prayed and you invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life, can you just indicate that to me just real quickly just by popping your hand up? Thank you anyone else thank you thank you anyone else anyone else before I pray Father thank you for these precious individuals who put their hand up and for anyone else out there who didn't put their hand up but they prayed that prayer thank you you heard their prayer God I ask, God, that this would be the beginning of a new life for them. Help them to plug into church and grow in their faith. Let them come close to you, God. And let this be the beginning of a time where they live in relationship with you, God. Help them to live for you tomorrow, next week, next year. And the thousands, million years from now in eternity, let them be worshipping you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen we're going to worship just now. We're going to worship God who's in our midst. Hi, I hope that today's message has helped you. If you want to find out more about us as a church, download more audio teaching, give us feedback, or make a contribution to our ongoing work and mission here in Edinburgh, please visit our website at destinyedinburgh.com. May God continue the great work that he is doing in your life.